Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone, in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly. And pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. As the kids are going, would you open up your Bibles with me? And as you're turning to Acts chapter 26, we want to glance backwards at Acts chapter 25 and remind us a little bit of the context of where we are and how we got here. As you're turning there, looking back at Acts 25, Paul has been arrested. Paul the Apostle, Paul who gave us most of the New Testament in letters to different churches that he had planted and was overseeing, he has been arrested in the temple in Jerusalem and is now being held in a jail in Caesarea, which is nearby. Caesarea was actually the government center. It was the head. So we live in LaGrange County. I I personally live in... But Shipshawana is not the seat of government for this county, the town of LaGrange. Same thing. That Jerusalem was sort of the center for worship, but the Romans were the ones who were the occupying force who were governing, and they were governing from Caesarea. So he is being held at a jail in Caesarea when he is kept there for two years by a Roman governor named Felix. Now, we, we said that this position of the Roman governor overseeing in that position uh, Most of us are not familiar with Felix. We're not familiar with Festus, the governor who came after him. We are familiar with another governor who was there previously named Pontius Pilate. So this is the same position that Pontius Pilate had as Jesus stood before him. Uh, Felix and then Festus are the ones that Paul is standing in front of. Uh, It's interesting because we know exactly where this place is. This whole interaction between Paul and Felix and then Festus happened right there. Like, in that room, the, the, the ruins of that room that existed, but we can actually go to the spot where this historical fact happened. If you were in our Sunday school class this morning, uh, we talked about how much of the scripture is historical narrative, and these stories are either true and our faith is real, or these stories are not true and our faith is worthless. At least that's what the Apostle Paul would say. He's been held for two years, and over the two years, the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him have not given up. They still have a plot to kill him. Paul learns of that, and so he appeals to Caesar, appeals his case before Caesar. He says, I don't think I'm going to get a fair trial around these guys. Here's the problem. Festus is now the governor, and he has nothing to charge him with. In fact, as King Agrippa, who Paul is going to be speaking to as we look at the text this morning, arrives, Festus says this to him, Acts chapter 25, verses 18 and 19. He says, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in the case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but who Paul asserted to be alive. Festus is at a loss. I don't know what to do. Caesar is the most powerful man in the world. I cannot send this accused prisoner to him without any charges. It would be as if someone from LaGrange County sent someone to the U.S. Supreme Court and said, we don't actually know what the case is about, but would you guys mind listening to him? 
They'll just say no. It's a waste of their time. And so Festus is actually bringing this before Agrippa. Agrippa is in the perfect position because he is the king who's ruling over Jerusalem and specifically the temple and the high priest. He knows these customs. So he's basically asking him a favor. Would you mind listening to this case? Give me the charges that I can bring against him. Well, King Agrippa II arrives. Uh, he's King Agrippa II. His father was uh, Agrippa I. He is the one in the early days of the church who persecuted the apostles. He put the apostle James to death. Uh, his father, so King Agrippa II, his grandfather was Herod the Great. He is the, the king who put all of the babies to death at the time of Jesus. In fact, they're currently meeting. This place is meeting within Herod's old palace. This is his grandfather's old house that this is meeting in. Now, that was 20 years before uh, Herod Agrippa II was even born. His uncle, just to give you a little bit more family thing, uh, his uncle was Herod Antipas. He's the one who put John the Baptist to death by cutting off his head. This is not a nice family to cross, right? Are, are you picking up the trend here? Uh, we want to be nice to these guys. They're kind of in control. And when he shows up, uh, he comes in as if he is in control of everything. The truth is he is not. Uh, Rome is ruling, and he is basically... Uh, a figurehead. He's a vassal king. He, they've given him uh, control over the temple and over the Jewish worship, but not a whole lot of else. He's going to have to trade some land to get some other uh, territories to rule, which we're not even going to talk about. But when he shows up, he acts like he is the big deal. In fact, Acts 25, 23 says that they entered, and that the Greek word that it, it's used to enter with is phantasia. Anyone ever heard that word before? Usually because we've been exposed to Disney. That's the only reason we know Fantasia. And just this spectacular fantasy showy parade with just parading everything that they have down these aisles in this place to say, I am a big deal. So Felix has kept him for two years without charges, basically to do a favor to the Jews. He succeeded by Festus who now wants to send him to Caesar but doesn't have any charges. So he's looking to Agrippa, who's going to come. Only Agrippa doesn't care. He's just there to be entertained. The one guy we should be fixing our eyes on is Paul. He seems like he's the helpless victim. He seems like he's the one at the mercy of what's going on. And I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt like circumstances in your life made you feel like you are the helpless victim of other things going on to you? Now, we've all done things, we've made mistakes, and we know, you know what, I'm in this situation because I did this. We, we kind of nod to that. But there's also times where we feel like, you know what, I didn't cause this. I didn't make this happen. That's where Paul is. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Paul is not coming complaining as if he were a victim. Paul is the one looking for an opportunity for the gospel. Festus is looking to accuse. Agrippa is looking to be entertained. Paul is looking to declare the gospel. Look with me at Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 3. So Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Just a little parenthesis, I love every single time the New Testament gives us that glimpse into someone was an eyewitness and saw this. It doesn't say the court record says Paul said this and that. It says Paul stretched out his hand. We only get that when an eyewitness was there. What we have in the New Testament is eyewitness testimony. 
By the way, that's still acceptable in our court of law. Just a thought. Permission to speak. So Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. King Agrippa has some Jewish background. He's actually, his family were Edomites, which are are neighbors of the Jews, but they were sort of adopted into the Jewish family. They've kept the Jewish customs. They considered themselves Jewish, but he's really Roman. He was educated in Rome. His allegiance is to Rome. He's serving as more of a figurehead, much like uh, Queen Elizabeth today in England. What does she actually rule over? Well, not a lot. Is she still super important? Yeah. Uh, Does she have a lot of power and authority over uh, their parliament? Not really. Uh, She has a voice to speak, but she's not actually a ruling dictator. I think that's important because Paul is not arguing in front of Agrippa for his freedom. That's what you and I would do. You and I, we find ourselves in difficult, binding situations where it seems like everything is crashing down among us, and we start passionately often angrily arguing for our freedom. This is unjust. This is unfair. I want to say from the beginning, that's not what Paul is going to be doing in Acts chapter 26. See, he's already appealed to Caesar. He doesn't have to show up. He's the one guy who doesn't have to be in this room. He could say, as a Roman citizen, I've appealed my case to Caesar. I'm waiting for Caesar. But he doesn't do that. See, Paul is not arguing for his freedom. Paul is arguing for the gospel. We're going to see this. We're going to take a little break for the Christmas season, talk about the incarnation, what it means for God to put on flesh and be one of us. But once Christmas is over, we're going to come back, and at the end of this, we're going to see Paul at the end of Acts chapter 26, verses 26 and 27, look a King Agrippa directly in the eye and say, I know that you know these things. I know that you heard about these things. Do you believe it? Now, that's interesting because we often stop short of that today. We don't want to put people on the spot. We want to just, man, I just want to say what I think. I I want to say what I think is true. And then, you know, you do you. Well, that is not how Paul approached the gospel. He said, here is what is true. What do you believe? He calls for a response. So come back for that. It's going to be interesting uh, seeing Paul's boldness there. But Paul is going to speak boldly. He's going to ask boldly. I think that means we should do the same. But first, he's going to tell his story of faith in Christ. Look at verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. He says, everyone knows my story. These people accusing me, they know my story. They've known for a long time, if they would be willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our forefathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? So we saw Paul make this exact same argument when he's first arrested in Acts chapter 22. He's arrested by the Jews and he turns to speak to them 
on the steps as he's being taken out, and he says, you guys know me. You saw me grow up here. Paul was a transplant. He was, he was born in Tarsus, but as a young boy, he comes to Jerusalem. He trains under Gamaliel, this, this leading rabbi of the time. He says, you know me. You saw me. You watched me grow up. You saw how passionate I was about the law of God. He says, I have been a zealous Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee is an unfamiliar term for you. Even if it's familiar, let me remind you, it was part of this sort of religious political parties that were jostling for power in Jerusalem at the time. Not unlike the political parties we have today with Republicans and Democrats, which it just seems they can be talking about the exact same thing and still fight with each other. Have you noticed that? Right? They, they can be on the same side of the argument and yet just seem like they're going at each other. Same thing with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Their main uh, distinction that kind of led to the separation in the road with the two of them was over the resurrection. Now, religiously, the Sadducees were a bit more conservative, especially in one doctrinal area, and that is they insisted, now we would love this about the Sadducees, by the way. We, we often kind of look down on them because they don't believe in the resurrection, but they insisted upon a literal interpretation of the scriptures. We are going to take the text for what it says. By the way, that's the stand of our church as well. We want to take the text for what it says. Only they had missed some things that were in the text. That things that It wasn't until later on that many of these things about Jesus and what God had planned for his people, those who he had called to himself, would come to light. The Pharisees, on the other hand, gave oral tradition equal authority with the written word of God. That actually places them sort of in the same camp that the Roman Catholic Church is today, that they see the scripture as holy and authoritative, but they also see the oral tradition of the church as having the same authority. It's interesting, looking at these two groups fighting for power right now, as Paul stands in front of them, the Sadducees hold the reins. They're actually, uh, there's more of them than there are Pharisees. They're the ones who stand accusing uh, the high priest is a Sadducee, so he's not on Paul's team, as it were. Uh, Paul says, I'm a Pharisee. You play for the other guys is basically the argument Paul is making. It's interesting to think about the history of this. Go In eight to ten years from when Paul is saying this, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in AD 70. The whole sacrificial system will be wiped out forever. The Jews have only worshipped through the sacrificial system for the last uh, two to 3,000 years. And when that happens, the Sadducees will completely disappear. This giant fight between Sadducees and Pharisees will end in about 10 years from when Paul is saying this. They are gone. What remains are the Pharisees who are going to say this oral tradition, we're going to take that and we're going to put it down in a book called the Mishnah which is uh, still today the guiding road for Orthodox Jews. How do we live a life that worships God now that we can't sacrifice anymore? They, they don't have a Messiah who has been that perfect sacrifice. How do we do that? Well, the Pharisees were going to prepare the way for our modern uh, rabbi and, uh, well, that, the whole modern Judaism system. Jesus is going to have a lot more problem with the Pharisees than he does the Sadducees. More run-ins with them. In fact, we see in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, this is because they elevated the thoughts of man to equal with the word of God. He says to them, you ignore God's law and you substitute your own traditions. And Paul says, you know me. I'm one of those guys. I'm one of those guys where our traditions rule the day. 
There is no way that I would support something that contradicts the traditions of our law, the traditions of our way of worship. You guys should know me. You know how passionate I have been about these things in the past. It's interesting. If the New Testament wanted to give us just a rosy picture of the Apostle Paul, it would have left out Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is the first martyr of the Christian faith, Stephen, who dies for his faith. And Acts 7, verse 58, tells us specifically that Paul, this Paul, even though he was known as Saul back then, Saul is sort of the Hebrew pronunciation of his word, uh, his name. Uh, Paul is going to be the the ambassador of the gospel to the Gentiles. So the Greek pronunciation of his name is Paul. I've got a lot of material. I'm trying to get through it quick. Uh, And so it tells us that this guy is standing there holding the coats while Stephen is stoned. If you want to make him look good, you just leave out those sort of details. Does that make sense? It's like when somebody's running for political office today, there's certain things they attempt to conveniently leave out of their bio. The Bible doesn't do that. Scripture doesn't paint the heroes of the faith as if they were saints, but real people redeemed by a true and real God. In fact, it gets worse. Think about this with me. If Paul is standing there uh, giving his approval, it actually tells us giving his approval to the death of Stephen. Death of Stephen comes one to two years after the death of Jesus. Now, Paul is described in Acts chapter 7 as a young man who is standing there. Let me ask you a question. If you're, now, this is just sort of supposing into scriptures. If you're a man who is passionate about your faith and you're in town when the largest, most dangerous heretic of all times is being publicly tried and crucified, is there a chance that the young man Saul was standing in the background when Jesus was accused? It, he would have been in town. Is there a chance if the biggest heretic of our time was going to be publicly crucified that Saul maybe saw Jesus on the cross? The scripture does not tell us that. We're given these two things in close proximity, so I want to suggest it's at least possible. Paul is going to make the argument. I think it's even more possible because Paul's making the argument to King Agrippa. He's going to say this at the end of Acts chapter 26. He says, King, this was about 30 years ago. But you remember, these things didn't happen under a rock, some hidden in a cave. These were public things. You knew about it. I knew about it. Everybody knew about it. What do you say now about Jesus? We find that in Acts 20, verse 26. He says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. We all knew about it. It's at least possible that Paul, the young, zealous Pharisee, was there. Passionate about the law. Passionate about persecuting anybody who would stand against how the Pharisee saw the worship of God to go. Look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Oh, that is dramatic. That is a dramatic confession that we do not see in modern times. 
One mistake in your past disqualifies you from any religious or political or public service in the future. Oh, but didn't you do this at one time? See, Paul is not saying, I should be trusted because I'm a good person. He's going to pin his argument for listening to him, the authority that he has, because of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So he doesn't shy away from saying, let me give you my testimony. I was terrible. I was sinful. I was deplorable. I cast my vote against them. Verse 11, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in my raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I would, I would try and corner a Christian and make them blaspheme this Jesus. Say something against this Jesus, anything. And he describes it as this raging fury that I had. Have you ever noticed people who are opposed to Jesus aren't just that, you know, I like this versus that. It's I hate Jesus. I despise the gospel. I despise what you stand for. It is the spirit of antichrist against Christ. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What must that moment have been like? Oh, for this passionate Pharisee who thought he was doing everything right, who thought he was persecuting those who were doing things wrong. Church, this is why for the last 500 years, one of my favorite mottos of the church has been Sepper Reformanda. Let us be always reforming because we can get it wrong. Pastors can get it wrong. Churches can get it wrong. The scripture does not ever get it wrong. We are constantly coming back. Jesus, reveal yourself in the word of God. Let me see more clearly, more truly who you are and how we are to worship you. This is Paul's testimony that he gives before King Agrippa. One powerful way to share your faith with others is sharing your testimony. Now, for a long time, witnessing to people got reduced to just sharing your testimony. Only, here's why I had a giant problem with that and actually still do. Sadly, those testimonies sound like this. I had a rough life. Now, here's the equation. I had a rough life, plus I let go and let God equals I now have a good life. I had a rough life. I added Jesus to it. Now I have a good life. Don't you want a good life too? Add Jesus to your life, right? Pray this prayer. Come to our church. Do this thing, and you will have a good life. Here's the problem with that testimony. That is the opposite of Paul's testimony. Paul's going to tell us elsewhere, I had a good life. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I kept the law with regards to the law, blameless, passionate, zealous. I even persecuted those who I thought had it wrong. I was set up to be somebody. I had a good life, plus... Jesus equals persecution, prison, beheaded. Right? That doesn't sell very well. 
When you're trying to witness to your friends and your relatives and your coworkers and say, listen, I had it good. I was partying. I had friends. Uh, it was the good life. I was rolling. And then I got Jesus. And now people hate what I say. Right? Nobody signs up for that sort of thing except for those who Christ has called to himself. Oh, it's an irresistible gospel when he is the one who saves my favorite scripture, Psalm 3, for salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not in our ability to sell a good story to people. We tend to do this. We package it. We wrap it up like a Christmas present. Our testimony in such a way that makes people think that the good news is really all you have to do is come to this place, pray this prayer, and then sit back while God fixes all of your problems. Scott, who writes for Desiring God, said this. Here's the assumption. Here's what's wrong with that way of thinking. Here's what they say. In a real bona fide answer to prayer, we are more like spectators than actors. In other words, we expect answers to prayer to feel something like a fireworks display. We pray, we take our seats, and then we just enjoy the show. Rather, when we pray, we do not let go and let God. Rather, we let go and then we get going. We recognize that God is sovereignly in control of all things, and once we know that, we have a freedom to boldly act and speak, even as Paul did. John Piper said it like this. This is one of the fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletin. We work because God is working. Why is it that your work has the power to be effective in your life? Why is it that you sharing the gospel has any chance of reaching anyone? It's because God is working. It is not the power of what you can do or accomplish. It is God's power. The writer C.S. Lewis spoke to the same thing like this. He says, We profanely assume that divine and human action exclude one another like the actions of two fellow creatures. So that God did this and I did this cannot both be true at the same exact time in the sense that each contributed a share. Here's what he's saying. We assume God is a creature like us. That we and God exist on the same plane. So either God does this or I do this. It can't actually be both. But see, God is not a creature like you and I. God is the sovereign king and ruler over every nation in all times, in all places. And we are just a little blip on the map. And yet God lovingly, sovereignly cares about your life and what you do in your life matters dramatically. And so we see this overlap where God is working and we are working. Here's the flaw Lewis is saying. In fact, he calls that, that flaw in thinking profanely assuming. Right? Think about this in Paul's shoes. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. He's been arrested. He's been held for two years for doing nothing else than declaring the gospel. If he had a mindset that said, I do my part and then God does his part, What's his next thought? Well, man, I've been arrested. After doing my part, God, I was faithful. I've been faithful. What's the next thought? God, you must not have kept your end of the bargain. Anybody else ever felt like that? Anybody else ever thought, ever felt, man, I have worked hard, and where has it got me? Nowhere. God, you didn't keep your end of the bargain. God, I was faithful. I, even, I, I sought to honor you and sought to step out in faith, and it hasn't seemed to work out. God, you must not have been 
faithful. Can you hear how dangerous and blasphemous that is? No, that's not what Paul is thinking, or else Paul would approach this completely different. He'd be arguing, he'd be begging for his, fe- his freedom, but freedom was not why Paul was there. The gospel is why Paul was there. Paul at this moment is not thinking this is two parts of a whole. It's the part that I've done, and it's God's part. No, no, no. This is all God. This is all God's work. The fact that I am in this jail is God's perfect plan for my life. Therefore, every moment is an opportunity for the gospel. The fact, Christian, that you're in the job that you're in is all God's work. And therefore, when you go to work tomorrow is an opportunity for the gospel. The fact that you live in the family, in the household that you do, is all God's work and is therefore an opportunity for the gospel. The friendships that you have. Listen, the people who hate you, the people who are against you, you feel like everything is stacked up, crashing down against you, that is God's work and therefore an opportunity for the gospel if we will have eyes to see it. In the midst of struggling and adversity, we look to God as the sovereign king of the universe. Yes, people make choices. Yes, people do evil, wicked, and failing things around us. But we don't put our trust in people. Our trust is in the living God. And therefore, this moment that you're in right now is an opportunity for God to show his great strength to a watching world. Here's the next fill in the blank. Because I trust that God is working in this situation, I will continue to be faithful. Why do you have the strength, Christian, to be faithful? Why do you have the strength to keep going? Because God is at work in your life right now. God is at work in your finances right now. God is at work in your marriage and your family and your future right now. Therefore, you can continue to be faithful. It's where Paul stands. Look at verse 16. But rise, this is Jesus speaking to him. He, he has just revealed himself to him, but now listen to this commission. Rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, this revelation you're getting right now, and what's coming to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Oh, church, there is so much in the next three weeks on just this passage right here. But I want you to pull one thing from this. This is Paul's commissioning. Paul's just shared his testimony. This is now his commissioning from Christ. Everything in the ultimate has been pointing. All the traditions of Jewish worship, traditions of Jewish sacrifice. We talked last week, even the traditions of Jewish washing and cleansing were pointing towards Jesus. Who would be the perfect sacrifice, take away the sins of his people? Who would once for all wash his people clean? And now, think about it first time. This has never happened in the history of God's dealing with his people. For the first time, Jesus tells somebody, which is Saul, who's pinned face down on this road to Damascus, I'm going to reveal the fullness of the gospel of salvation through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's never happened. That's what you're going to preach from now on. Not these laws and rules that you were so passionate about you would even persecute people. You're going to preach the gospel from now on. That it's God's grace that saves. 
It's faith given from God, responding back to God in Christ alone that saves. That's your new message. Paul describes that message as the surprising greatness of the revelations. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he describes this moment. He says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Oh, church, I think we misuse that verse a lot. We have someone who's giving us trouble at work. We refer to them as a thorn in the flesh. We have a physical ailment that we struggle with for a while, and we refer to that as a thorn in the flesh. No, those are opportunities for the gospel. Those are opportunities to rightly show your trust and faith is in Christ alone, in God alone, and not in some person or some physical state that we find ourselves in. It is our moment to say, I am putting my hope and trust in God, and therefore I'm going to treat you in a way that's different from how you're treating me. No, this thorn in the flesh was because the gospel had been revealed to him, and it was such an amazing revelation that to keep him from being conceited, God gave him something horrific. That's different from your situation and my situation. Here's what God says to him. I will send you with this good news to your people. That's the Jews and to the Gentiles. But look at the order in which he says it. He says, I have delivered you, verse 17, from your people. I have delivered you from the Jews. Now let me ask you this question. Does Paul necessarily look and feel delivered? No, he's pinned to a road in Damascus, and he's like, oh no, right? I've been killing these Christians. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And God says, what I have done is I have plucked you from those people. How about fast forward 30 years as Paul is standing in this prison and now arguing in court for his life. Does he feel delivered? No, but is he delivered? Oh, absolutely. He says, I've also delivered you from the Gentiles. Ironic that now 30 years later, he is standing as if he's a prisoner to the Gentiles, but he is not. He has said, I'm a prisoner to Christ. It's an important distinction for us to keep in mind. And God says to him through Christ, I have taken you. It's not just I've delivered you from them, but you could have spent your whole life as a Pharisee. You could have spent your whole life as one of them. Church, you could have spent your whole life as part of maybe whatever tradition or friend group you had fallen into, maybe some family characteristic that just seemed to define everyone. And God says to you, I have plucked you from that. If you have alcoholism in your family that no longer has to define you, I have plucked you from that. If you have abuse in your family that doesn't have to define you because I have delivered you from that. I've pulled you from your people. He also says, I've delivered you from the people who are not like you. Those stories of horrific lives that we hear that sound so different from us, except apart from the grace of God, that could have been our story as well. He says, I've delivered you from that, but listen, I'm sending you back to them. taken you from that. I've taken you from this old way of life, from people who were like you, those who were different from you, and I have made you my own. Christian, hear that today. Christ has made you, if you have trusted in him, has made you his own. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 1 says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people. This used to just be the Jewish people in the Old Testament. They were a chosen family. One family that God chose out of all the families of the earth, but now in Christ we have been adopted into that family. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. God owns you. God holds you. Why? Because you were good? Because you had potential? Because you were better than somebody else? No, God is going to put the righteousness of Christ on you so that 1 Peter 2.9 says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Were we to turn off all of the lights in this room and block off every door and say, find your way out, many of you would spend a long time groping in the dark. In fact, were we to put you in an unfamiliar labyrinth of a building Turn off all the lights and say, find your way out. You would find yourself incapable of doing it. God is not saying you were smart enough to find your way to salvation. He says, I have taken you. I've made you my own. I have taken you from darkness to light. And now I have a job for you. I have delivered you this to fill in the blank from them, and I am sending you to them. One of the unfortunate things that we see again and again in the church is people who come out of darkness, out of the world, and say, I want nothing to do with this world. Now, that can be a safe thing, especially when one-on-one we might be drawn back into temptation. But I want to tell you, God has uniquely ordained one person who can reach your family the best, and that's you. God has uniquely put together one person who can reach your old friend group the best, and that's you. God has taken you from them that he might send you to them. What's your job assignment? What is it that we are called to do? The same as was given to Paul, to open eyes. The gospel is confrontational. Their eyes are closed. The gospel is an attempt to convince. Sometimes we're like, man, I don't want to push anything on you. That's the opposite of the gospel. We have people who are lost and blind and don't know that they are lost and blind. And we are arguing. We are persuading. We're doing everything that we can convince them. Just as Paul said in verse 13, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the, brighter than the sun. My job is to proclaim what I have seen. To call people, look to him. If needs be, to pry their eyeballs open. We don't want to look, and as a Christian, we pry their eyeballs open. This is the command given. This is the task we are not up to. Like, don't, don't miss this. We have been called to open blind eyes, only we can't do that. That is God's job. But we work because God is working. Isaiah 42, verse 6 and 7 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is God's work. To accomplish that work, he is sending you. We're not able to accomplish that task. Look at verse 18, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to turn to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. I cannot forgive anybody's sins. I cannot give them a place among those who are being sanctified through faith in Christ. Oh, but Christian, we work because God is working. 
When you feel hopeless about your family and your situation, God is working. We have hope in the midst of hopelessness because he is working. Not because we can see how this is all going to work out, but because we know our God is sovereignly, lovingly in control of all things. We have strength to share. We have strength to forgive. We have strength to keep going because our God is working. Look at the end of this passage. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, because that is the anchor of my hope and my faith, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This is what God commissioned me to do, even though it was difficult and painful, and I have not been disobedient, not because I am great, but because of my great hope and trust in a living God. Verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and through all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have done, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying, both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophet Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to raise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I love, even at this moment, we're going to see it uh, in the future here, but Paul turns his focus. He turns his aim directly at King Agrippa. That's why Paul's in this room. Paul's had an opportunity to talk to Felix and then Festus, and now this is an opportunity to share the gospel with Agrippa. And he says, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, to that commission. Why? Because I determined, and here's, here's one more fill in the blank, I determined I will be faithful to do what God asked me to do, and I will trust him with the results. This is not me coming up with a plan, and then if my plan doesn't work, I'm super ticked. God, you let me down. How could you, how dare you, God, violate me? No, that's not what Paul says. He says, I will be faithful to what God has asked me to do, and I will trust him with results. If it turns out the way I hope, wonderful. If it doesn't, wonderful. If I lose my head, wonderful. Glory to God, I will proclaim the truth of the gospel. Where does he start? Where was Paul when Jesus called his name, when Jesus got a hold of him? Where was he, church? He was on the road to? Look where he starts. I started in Damascus. I started on day one. From the first moment that Christ called me, I didn't wait till I had all the answers and could answer all of the arguments. From day one, I began to say, I will declare the truth, at least what I know about who Christ is. Christians, start with your friends, your family, the people you already know, the connections you already have. But again, notice Paul's testimony is not, I had a rough life, I let go and let God, and now I have a good life. No, his testimony was, I was wrong. I was sinful. I was lost in my sin. I was blinded, and I did not know it, but God. Your testimony is not that your life has changed in the last few years. Your testimony is you were dead in your sins. You were lost in darkness, but God. That's the good news that we have to share. That God would save a wretched sinner like myself. Famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers in this last century, 
in the last few years of his life, was unable to stand in the pulpit and preach as he had done so powerfully. And someone came to him and asked him, Doctor, are you grieving? Are you sad that you're no longer able to preach? And he said, no, because my goal has never been preaching. I would grieve if my name were no longer written in the Lamb's book of life. The amazing gospel of grace in your life, it's not the ability to do things and have your story work out, it is that God would save a wretched sinner like you and like me. So his testimony was, I was wrong. I was sinful. Christian, you don't come to God by changing your life, but when you come to God, your life will change. See, we, we've talked about the results, only the results were just a byproduct. It was actually the transforming power of God in our life. Paul, in effect, says this is the promise that we have been hoping for as Jewish believers. And it's found in Christ alone. That's our testimony as well to a world that is hoping and waiting for some salvation. We know it because every four years in this country, we act as if the Savior is coming if we can just vote the right guy in. When he doesn't make it, then we just fall apart. And if the other guy gets in, then we hate him and we rail against him as if he's the Antichrist. Listen, Republican or Democrat will never be Jesus to you or to this nation. Our hope is Christ alone. Church, we have good news to share, especially at Christmas. Therefore, let us proclaim Christ the King has come. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. I want to just close a little bit different this morning by encouraging you to do something. We would love to help you put together your God-honoring, gospel-centered testimony that you can share with other people. There's many ways to share your faith. There's great apologetic tools that are out there. Uh, there's great scriptures that you can memorize to share. I would encourage you to do those things. But one of the simplest ways to start, because if we had a show of hands, in fact, let's do it. How many of you feel awkward and unprepared if I told you today you have to go out and share your faith with somebody? You'd say, oh man, I'm not sure what I'd say. Just put your hand up. I want you to see you're in good company. Look around. We want to help you put a testimony together. In fact, I would encourage you this week, write down some of your testimony. Only here's, here's the thing. Only write it on about the amount of space that you have in the lines in your bulletin. Keep it short. One to three minutes. If you had one minute to say, here is the sin I was lost in. I was dead in my trespasses, separated from God. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. Here's the circumstances Christ used for me. For Paul, he blinded him with this light upon a road. For me, it wasn't that. For me, it happened here. It happened there. It happened in this circumstance. Here's where I turned my life over to him. Here's the dramatic change I saw in my heart and my life. Don't just look at the results. Look at the change that you can share with someone else. Point them to that hope. But maybe you're here. Write that down this week. If you want to work on it, we would love to sit down and help you do that in a way that you can share with other people. But there's a chance that we have people here this morning who do not have a testimony because they're unconverted. Now that may be because they've come in as unbelievers. Not fully, truly believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation is found in him. Man, if that is you this morning, I would beg you, consider Christ. 
Scripture says, as long as it's today, you have an opportunity. As long as you're still breathing, you have an opportunity to repent and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. We're not guaranteed a single day or a single breath. Don't assume, well, later in life, I'll sort this whole thing out. But there's also people in this room who've maybe believed they were a Christian for a long time. Because you thought being a Christian was the good things that you did, and you've stacked up enough good things to say, well, I'm basically a good person, therefore God will accept me. And I would say no one stands accepted before God by what they do. It is only in Christ. Man, if that's you this morning, and I don't know, it doesn't matter if you've been here a long time or if you're a kid or if you're a young person who is sitting here and you go, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. Young people, there is no second-generation Christians. Christ either saves you or he has not saved you at all. Trust in him today. Put your hope in him today. And one of the things we would love to do with the next steps is sit down and talk with you. You can find yourself going, okay, great, I think that might be me. What do I do? Well, we're not going to call you to the altar and, and pray some prayer and go, well, now you're fine. Go and live your life. We want to sit down and help you walk out a life of discipleship in Jesus Christ. What does it look like to put your trust in Christ tomorrow morning and Thursday morning and a year from now and 10 years from now? Talk to anybody in here. Say, man, I'm really interested. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I want that. I don't want to miss out on what Christ has. Uh, you, can, you can talk to somebody. You can text the number on the screen. You can email. Here's what we're saying in that. We want to give you a million ways to reach out so that you have no excuse for not responding. Uh, there's a great paper right at the back as you walk out of that door that just says the gospel. Front and back is just filled with scriptures. Pick one of those up if you have any doubts. Go through it this afternoon. Read every scripture that's in there. Write down the fill in the blanks. This is what it says about me. And then ask God that question, God, am I saved? Now this isn't for those who've trusted in Christ and then you had a bad week. All right, I want you to hear me real clear. Those whom he saves, he keeps. And yet there's a chance that we've been given a false sense of conversion because someone said, well, you prayed a prayer, now you're good. Why don't you stand up on your feet? Let's allow the Holy Spirit to just search our hearts. See, our God is not a God who saves because we finally got in the right place. He's not a, a God who saves because we finally figured it out and said the right words, and did the right things, that is a works-based salvation. Our God is the Ancient of Days, seated upon the throne, sovereign over all of time, ruling over all things. And therefore, salvation belongs to Him. Your salvation belongs to Him. So here's what I want us to do. No matter where you are in your walk with God, would you just bow your head? We're going to take communion in just a minute. A reminder that our salvation is through the body that was broken, the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. That is our only hope of forgiveness of sins. But before we get there, I want to call you to say, God, where am I at in my walk with you? Where am I at in my relationship with you? For those of you who have trusted in Christ, I would urge you in this moment, beg God to deepen that relationship, cause you to trust him more. And if you have not trusted in him, this is your moment. Right now, as you stand here, in the quietness of your heart, cry out to God, oh God, would you save me?
just stand in a moment of reverence and solemn silence before the Lord as He does business with our hearts.